0: Welcome to the Better Bozo. Bozo.
1: Hey Jeff. Hello Mika. <laughs> I'm excited to that that I get to introduce someone I met at a conference. Great, Robin Swirling. Yes. Um, today, and and Robin, so you know, and so so everybody else at home knows, she is the founder and director of Works in Progress. Yep. And um, here, how about you? You tell us.
0: I'll tell you all about works in works progress. In progress yeah. It's an organization that aims to end sexual and gender-based harassment in progressive spaces, which I'm not sure what that means. What is it? Just
1: progressive? Spaces? I, I,
0: it's a little weird. I, Only progressive spaces? I guess unprogressive spaces. It just keeps happening. But uh, there's a, an innovative certification program that blends values-based training curriculum and strengthen workplace policies and procedures. Oh, cool. Okay. With the goal being everyone feels safe to report any sexual or gender-based harassment, assault, or other abuse they experience with the confidence that they will be trusted and receive justice.
1: Mm. That's pretty heavy. Yeah, and and knowing Robin, um, I know that there's a shift there from, or having experienced one of Robin's workshops, in fact, there's a shift there from just, Running through the motions, which I think yeah. HR has been doing in companies yeah. for a long time. And we
0: talk about that in the episode, actually.
1: And um, and we unpack kind of, oh, wait a minute. What does this mean about us as better bozos and how we show up in our shared spaces? And not necessarily progressive ones. <laughs> I mean, in fact. <laughs> like home,
0: like like on the street. At the bar. With our families. Yeah, at the bar, that's a good one. Not necessarily progressive, especially if we're a little buzzed or drunk. It's tough to be progressive in an intelligent way.
1: Yeah, and I want to thank Robin for taking the time and unpacking these things for us, helping us become better bozos, because it's good to be better.
0: Yeah, and you can uh, follow Robin actually on Medium. She's also an author, so find Robin Swirling on Medium.com. Um, where she writes about sexual harassment and uh, Donald Trump and all sorts of things. Um,
1: and meanwhile, friends... Friends of, the,
0: friends of the show.
1: Friends of the show. Or, <laughs> you know, if you're not a friend of the show... New listeners. It, it. The rumor has it that you like us. We've been pretty darn pleased with, with the feedback we've been receiving and how many people have become... You know, have shown up and said, hey, guys, this is good stuff. Yeah. So just to... Shout out to you. Thanks for that. And a reminder, please take a moment. Let's take a breath. Subscribe to all the channels you can find if you can. Um, Leave a review. That'd be super helpful. We'd love to hear from you. Share with a friend. If you like what we're doing, share with a friend or share with eight friends. Share with all your friends. Um, Drop some... Cash on the Patreon. Yeah, please Look,
0: donate uh, even a dollar one time or a, a, a monthly recurring donation to help keep the show rolling. Leave a tip. You leave a tip. Leave so a tip. That's nice. Yeah, help us help us buy a better bozo coffee, um, aka pay for post production. Uh
1: huh. <laughs> I mean, it is what it is, guys. We, yeah, we'd appreciate your help.
0: And if you could rate the episodes, rate the well, well, rate us actually, rate the show and like us on uh, Facebook follow us on Facebook and also on Instagram so that we can continue
1: it's a conversation we'd like to keep having we've just started out the door and gaining momentum with your help the better bozo community is growing
0: i like that the bbc
1: the bbc <laughs> that's right <laughs> the better bozo we're taking the bbc <laughs> back <laughs> occupy bbc
0: (laughs) well uh thanks for listening hope you enjoyed today's episode of the better bozo with robin swirling
1: welcome to the better bozo it's an absolute thank you for having me it's a pleasure (laughs) and an honor to have you on Mm-hmm. So maybe I will maybe just launch uh, and dive in a little bit, so I can tell Jeff. I've I've told Jeff how uh, I met Robin at a conference in New York. I think it was already more than a year ago. Um, yes, and this mm-hmm. conference was like many many conferences, um, A regular kind of professional young hip conference in New York. And what stood out to me was that the conference had prioritized, um, at the time I didn't know Robin, but a very impressive and sharp uh, way to tackle what had been, I guess, obvious to some, not obvious enough to others, that workspaces and the shared spaces that we have are, um, I think we can say, unsafe um, and I say this as, as, a, as a white cisgendered man, um, and that we, part of our norm, part of normal everyday professional spaces are where we kind of um, dismiss the fact that <laughs> the experience is not the experience that I have for many people. That I feel very, very comfortable, but that's not necessarily a shared experience, um, and I really appreciated meeting Robin. And then noticed that after a very powerful, um, what was it, 45 minutes? There was a workshop. Uh, was
2: shorter than that. But yeah, it was. Oh, the <laughs> right. There was a talk and then there was
1: also a workshop. And then there was a workshop. And I was frustrated that after a very powerful talk, there weren't a lot of cisgendered white guys that showed up to say, here's how we can follow up. Um, and at that point, I was... Um, Actually, so humbled, by what Robin had to kind of say that to me, I felt it very personal. That I figured, you know what, one day I'd really like to follow up and talk more with Robin. And I'm really glad we can hop on the line um, and discuss a little bit more about what you're what you're up to. Can you tell yeah. us a little bit um, <laughs> about what uh, Works in Progress is about? Yeah. Um- you know what? Before you do, I also want to add something to my introduction. Yeah. Robin, since meeting you and then meeting with that I guess small d um remember there was, you invited me to come to a little gathering happened that happened off, uh, off Washington Square Park. Mhm. Um what what was the name of it something about the Democrats? Um progressive It wasn't Demo- anything
2: formal. It wasn't anything formal.
1: <laughs> um that evening had inspired me i came home and said fuck this is not robin's job this is my job um and since then also i think i came home and i was in a men's group with jeff who runs men's groups um and does a very good job facilitating and i remember coming home saying this is not your burden this should not be your burden this should be our burden i think is my biggest takeaway
2: well I think it takes all of us and people of all sorts of identities to work together to create these safer environments that we strive for. Um, no, it shouldn't necessarily be all on me or all on women or all on you know uh, queer folks or all on trans folks to do the educating around our work um, and around our identities and how to create safe spaces for us. Um, and we absolutely need the partnership of Men and straight people and cis people, right? Um, but I think there's a role for all of us to play in doing this work. And so I'm grateful that I get to do it. And I'm grateful for partners like you guys who want to show up and have these conversations.
1: Cool. Well, what I'm hoping we do is, you know, let's let's dive in. Tear us apart a little if you want. You know, it's uh, I, I, I want to have a good, strong conversation. And and yeah, let's bring it. Uh, I would add
0: to the terrace <laughs> apart. I think there needs to be a compassionate component uh, to what you're speaking to. We're partnering together in this, so that's my yeah, my caveat around appreciating your enthusiasm to be torn apart, Mika. And <laughs> uh, over here, I also want it to be sort of gently being torn sure, apart because sure, sure. I can I can hang with a lot. So
2: <sighs> yeah, no, my interest is very rarely in tearing anyone apart. Um, unless they've shown themselves to be worthy of such. Um, but um, be a
0: capital D. But
2: I'm, I'm at what I said about partnership, right? This is, there's work to be done and it's great that you guys are creating a space for educating and sort of dismantling and um, figuring things out, but it does not require us to tear each other apart. But that kind of gentle correction or sharing of perspectives um, is what I hope our conversation will be.
0: Mm-hmm. Great. Me too. So what do we not know? Or do you want to go back before you answer that question? (laughs) Because that's a big one. Do you want to go back and talk about Works in Progress
2: first? Sure. Um, Yeah. So Works in Progress is a nonprofit certification program that works with progressive workplaces to shift our focus from a liability mindset when we talk about sexual and gender-based harassment at work to one that's really focused on creating safe working environments for all of us. Um, it takes a comprehensive approach to addressing workplace harassment, not just through you know a one-off training that people can click through on a computer, um, but rather really addressing the workplace cultures through policies and practices, as well as trainings that are really interactive and focused on the questions that people need to have answered in order to be able to...
0: Know how to safely navigate their workplaces. Right on. Could so to sum up a little of what I just heard. It sounds like proactive versus reactive. Does that as seem- much as
2: possible. Yeah,
0: yeah. Because I like that distinction from a liability standpoint, which is basically cover your ass,
2: mm-hmm.
0: check the box. Yeah, click through this five-minute comprehensive and air quotes. Uh, sexual mm-hmm. harassment policy document versus what you're talking about, which is changing culture, helping people to to bring more people into the fold, have it be more of an open conversation.
2: Yeah, exactly. Um, people need the chance to ask questions and to understand, and they need to be provided with information about sexual harassment um, and what that looks like at work in a way, and what it looks like outside of work, I should say. Um but in a way that speaks to people's real life experiences. Um, So many of the programs that workplaces use to say, hey, we did a sexual harassment training um, are really black and white scenarios. And they're like, you know, what did John do wrong in this situation? It's like, John shouldn't have taken his pants off in the meeting. Like, well, we know. (laughs) Um, That's from an actual uh, example. That's an actual training example. okay. Um, and, uh, you know, and that's, you know, we all know that, right? For the most part. And if you don't, great. Um, but we all know John shouldn't be taking his pants off in a meeting. Like, I think we're all pretty much, for the most part, on the same page about that. Yeah. Um, but what people are less likely to know and understand is what their employer's responsibility are towards them as employees in terms of protecting them from harassment, who that harassment can come from. Um, In terms of it being coworkers, yes, but also everyone that you encounter as a result of your work, from vendors to the security guard at the front desk to interns, right? These are all people that your employer has a responsibility to protect you from being harassed by and to take action if you report that harassment. Um, And people don't necessarily know about that. They don't know about what happens Okay, fine. Like in the office, sure, I understand this. But what happens when I go to happy hour or a conference? Um, How does this play out? And what kinds of steps can I take through my workplace's policies? And then also as an individual just existing in society to lessen the risk of harassment and to lessen the impact on myself and others. Um, And so that's the kind of stuff that we do. And we address them, we address these situations really clearly through policy. And then also do training so that people can have these questions answered or be made aware of, you know, the full scope of things.
0: Hmm. So one of the things you said, and thanks for all that, going to happy hour. Now that's Mm -hmm. fascinating because Meek and I were just talking before we hopped on with you about what is our responsibility in the community? What is our responsibility? For instance, when we see a man catcalling a woman just to mm-hmm. use those, those terms gender-wise. Uh, and that has me really curious of, okay, you go to a happy hour. It's not a work function. You're there with coworkers. I, I'm really curious. Well, I, I can make up lots of stories where obviously damage can be done with sexual harassment. And then there's no way that doesn't come into the workplace. But if it didn't happen in, you know, that, that the literal brick and mortar workplace, uh, it feels like a gray area. I'm curious to hear more about that
2: it absolutely is and can be a gray area and there's a lot of, you know, dependent factors here. So is it a work sponsored happy hour Mm. or something you were really expected to go to for your job? Or is it just something where some coworkers went out for drinks of their own volition after work? Right. Um, those are different situations and could be held up legally differently. Um, But what you're saying in terms of, you know, it may not be a work event, but what happens at happy hour with your coworkers can come into the workplace is one of the things that I talk about in trainings with folks, because that's absolutely true. Um, Even if you're not at work, the people that you're interacting with who you have to interact with in a professional manner, the conduct outside of work has a lot of bearing on how you feel about a person, how safe you feel working with that person. Um, if I'm at a bar and I watch my coworker, you know, and and i've it's just a bunch of coworkers going out essentially as friends after work, you know, but then I see my coworker take some super drunk girl home.
3: Mm.
2: Um, that's going to impact my feelings on this person. Um, or if i what I hear about happening, you know if I hear people talking at work on Monday morning about their activities over the weekend, that does have an impact. And so one of the things that's really important in my work is expanding our definitions and understanding of sexual harassment <laughs> away from just the very strict legal definition of it, which requires things to be severe and pervasive, which require them to generally have occurred like in settings that the workplace controls, you know, that your employer controls to a certain extent. Um, and instead shift to this understanding of there's lots of behaviors that may not rise to the legal definition that might not be legally <laughs> actionable, but that nonetheless have really severe impact on your ability to work with somebody. Yeah. Um, if I don't feel like I can work safely with you because I've heard you use racial slurs or I have witnessed your, you know, unsafe or unsavory behavior towards, um, towards other women or things like that, like that is going to impact how I work with you, whether that happened at work or at the bar.
1: Well, I feel like diving in here a little bit and getting a little vulnerable. um, Since the idea here with the Better Bozo is that we get to speak with guys, we get to speak with some bozos and identifying as one for a second, knowing that, you know what, what you're saying, what I'm hearing, um, I have to admit, gets very confusing and alarming. And suddenly I feel like I'm threatened. And suddenly I feel like, wait, I don't know exactly where one line starts and the other line ends and where a safe space is. And I think that's part of the tension around our conversation. Um, and I'm wondering if we can actually contextualize this even further, sharpen it even further. Um, Maybe step away or step around what feels like a little bit of HR conversation. And I realize that when it comes to legalities and when it comes to uh, professional approach, yes, very legal language needs to be used. But can we dive in a little towards, damn, Robin, I'm not sure where I'm on safe ground. I um, need some help, I guess. And I say this as a bozo hoping to get better. Does that make sense?
2: Yeah. I mean, I think it's, um, there's a lot of times where people are feeling like, you know, well, what what can I do and what can't I do? Um, I would encourage you to think about, you know, if there's a joke you want to tell or a comment you want to make or something like that, as soon as it triggers something in your head of like, should I should I say this? Like, the answer is probably no, right? Like, you already know that you're questioning that. Uh Um, You already know that, like, it's maybe, it's iffy. And in those cases, I would say, you know, it's not that things are supposed to be, you know, uh, uh, like, not allowed or out of bounds. um, But rather, you know, and it's not about, like, killing anyone's fun. I am not trying to be a buzzkill. um, But... I think that those moments are the times to think really clearly about uh, consent in our interactions with people. Um, We think about consent most of the time when we're talking about sex stuff or sexual assault. But consent is something that we use all the time in our everyday lives, right? If I ask you, hey, do you want to go to lunch today? Uh, do you want to go to the Indian place down the street or do you want to go to the pizza place three blocks away? Um, do you want to eat there or should we bring it back? Do you want to split stuff or should we each get our own thing? Right, All of those are moments where we're ha- navigating like a consent-based conversation. And we can do that when we're you know, wanting to have or conversations or tell certain jokes or talk with vulnerability and honesty about a particular topic. Whatever it is, you know, anytime there's a moment of I don't know if everyone will be okay with this exact conversation. Mm-hmm. Um anytime that comes up for you is a moment to be able to check in with people and to say um hey, like do you mind if we if I talk about something this way or um you know, like I actually have a personal experience with that thing, which usually comes up, you know, in workplaces. Um, but I actually have a personal experience. You mind if I share a story about it? Um, and it gives people the opportunity to say yes or no. Right. And we need to be cognizant of our power dynamics in those moments, but, um, a focus on consent helps us navigate the trickier moments. I think.
0: I super appreciate that. And, and, I I agree with you. And and because I'm a therapist, I've been working this for years. That's becoming second nature. Like I had a 90 minute conversation yesterday with a man and I must have asked 20 times, may I offer something? May I reflect something back to you? And Mm -hmm. and that's come with a lot of sort of blood, sweat and tears on my end of being a bozo and entitled white dude and having to get humbled and schooled many, many times. And so Yes, right on to consent and being able to do that. I'm also really interested in repair because one of the dynamics I see a lot of is we just step in it. We step in shit. We, we get ourselves in hot water because we're not trained, nor do we necessarily as white cisgendered men have to think about that shit. Um, and one of the stickier dynamics that I've been in and witnessed and, and can imagine is I've just stepped in something, right? It's like a big fart in the room and everyone looks really awkward. That's a place where I get curious. How do we help men, especially? And I would say in this case, I, mean, I know we I'm, I'm using gendered language here, but men and women, how do we help men say, whoa, sorry, wow, sorry I said that. Uh, and also help women lean in there. Cause, uh, and I'll, I'll say a little more about this. I think what I've seen happen quite often is a man will do something unbeknownst to him and then a woman walks away not saying anything and suddenly he's a perpetrator, but he doesn't get the opportunity to to know his actions and the impact nor shift his behavior and still stay relational with this person. So that's a big challenge I see.
2: Yeah, that kind of repair is really essential. Um, one of the things that we know is the most effective kind of programming that we can do for people, um, both within the workplace and just for navigating the world is bystander intervention, which allows you to speak up for yourself, but also for other people. Mm. And that I think more people learning those skills and feeling equipped to say something in the moment, um, or shortly after the moment, right. You can always go talk to somebody the next day and say, Hey, that thing you said last night made me really uncomfortable. Um, yeah. Or hey, I think that thing that you said to Robin made her really uncomfortable, and I think you owe her an apology. Mm-hmm. Um, so learning those skills and techniques is one thing that we can do for everybody, regardless of gender. Um, and I think this is one of those moments where you know we talk about partnership and whose job is it to do these things, and you know, Mika, you talking about you know it's not your job, meaning me, right? It, it's my job, meaning you as a white cis man. Um, and that's those moments, right? Where you can say, it, it doesn't necessarily have to be, you know, you said something, Jeff, that made me uncomfortable and I just walked away. You know, if it's just the two of us, that's one thing. But if there's a third person there, sometimes it, it can be that person who says something. So that's one thing. Mm-hmm. The other is um, absolutely about um, how people receive that feedback. So,
3: mm-hmm.
2: so much of the reason that none of us say something in the moment is we've been really conditioned that your response is going to suck, right? Like mm. the response that we get is going to be that we need to lighten up or, you know, we don't know our own experiences as women. Like right. we're not reliable narrators of our own experiences. And so we don't actually know what we just heard or what was said, right? Like I didn't mean it that way. Or, you know, you you took that the wrong way. Sure. Or things like What's that. Or it problem, was just a problem? Lighten up. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like all of that, the immediate shift to hostility that can make us feel really unsafe. Um, and, you know, if I know you really well, maybe it's, <laughs> I'm more able to do that. But if it's a guy that I don't particularly know, I don't know how his response what his response is going to be and this is true regardless of gender right but I don't yeah. know what somebody's response is going to be I don't know how hostile things are going to turn and especially when I'm talking to men I don't know if I'm now in physical danger right. um and so you know and it's you hear a lot of like well why would you think that why would you expect that men are going to physically hurt you and it's like well I I actually just don't know because sometimes that is what happens, right? We have well, there's quite a story track after record story. Yeah. Right, we've story after story of women refusing to give their phone number to a guy and then he murders her in a parking lot. Yeah. So, it's uh it's not that simple um as just like how do you lean in or feel empowered to speak up? Some of it is learning the track record and getting to the point where guys are going to say, "I'm so sorry," and actually feel like we are going to get that repair moment. Um We don't, as all of us as people, I don't think it comes naturally to most of us to accept that kind of feedback and immediately go to the, I'm so sorry. I definitely did not want to hurt you. How can I make this better place? Um, I am guilty of this as well, right? Of being a person who... It very much feels like, oh, I didn't mean to say that, and it's like, right, <laughs> let me take a step back and figure out how do I make this better for somebody um and so that moment is really important to what you're saying though it's essential that people be able to um to hear that their behavior was a problem and make amends and if they and if you don't know that your behavior was a problem, how can you do that right so it yeah. is um some of the work that we all need to do is figuring out how do we address this behavior in the moment or shortly thereafter so that we do give people a chance to fix it and to grow.
1: You know, I'm, I'm really appreciating what you're describing as um, kind of a, a shift into calling in culture from calling out, even though I think there's a place for call out culture as well i'm i'm really curious um because you're you step into you live in washington d c right and you've been involved Thank you and you you're involved with with different political movements and um high level kind of professional works places which i can imagine may or may not um prioritize what feels to me like a a transformation uh, into a highly vulnerable personal space that's something that's a real priority to to breathe that in i can imagine in a in a in a in an office space where everybody's wearing a suit and there's deadlines and deliverables and outputs and outcomes and things need to happen now 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 um but and then and then you're i i, I don't know how it works exactly if you're invited into an office to to you know stop the pace for a second and 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 what happens do you do you can, can a transformation take place in a workplace between professional colleagues to the extent that you're describing because it feels to me like this is an, a massive personal moment like the, this can be uh, years of of work that needs to be put into this. And I'm just curious if this, you know, what what your experience has been.
2: I don't know that you know, massive personal transformation takes place all the time. I think it is more about shining light on concepts that are really confusing and haven't been terribly well explained to most people most of the time. Um, I am sure that some of the trainings I've done or the work that I've done with folks have led some people to leave that room and have some really good self-reflection about the ways in which they may have um, harmed other people over the course of their lives through the kinds of behaviors that we talked about or by not stepping up into a moment where they had a chance to make something better for somebody. Um, I do think that that happens. I don't know about massive transformation between people, One of the things I've had to learn in myself is um, I'm very inclined to want people to believe the same way as me Um, and to convert somebody to believing the same thing. Uh Um, And sometimes what I don't actually, what I need is not actually for them to necessarily get all the way to believing all the same things as me, but I need their behaviors to change. And so sometimes that behavior change alone is enough. Um, And so I don't, while it would be wonderful for people, for workplaces and workplace cultures to transform enormously from a place of vulnerability and understanding like you're talking about, um, What I really need people to leave the room being able to do is identify the kinds of behaviors we're talking about and engage in the types of bystander intervention that we've learned, um, understand what the new policies are, understand how to get remedies when uh, or how to access remedies when something bad happens, uh, and also know what those behaviors are, be able to identify what these things are, not do it themselves, be able to recognize it in other people. Um, so that kind of massive emotional shift mm-hmm. is less likely. And that is the kind of stuff that takes a lot of work, right? That is not, you know, the trainings that I do are, are like a four hour thing with maximum 30 people in a room, um, usually less, and that's certainly better and more interactive and more intensive than the little trainings that people click through. But it's not enough time or focus, you know, focused in the right way or focused on the right things to create, you know, huge emotional shifts in people. Um, but what I hope it does is get people to understand their own experiences and what they've been observing, and be able to shift their behaviors, even if not shifting their emotional state in that. Way. Same
0: way. Something that comes up, and I I, I really appreciate this, but something that comes up around that, uh, because uh, especially in the more progressive places like where Mika and I live, Boulder, Colorado, um, I see a lot of men behaving, quote, the right way. And it doesn't necessarily translate into any sort of, um, uh, I would say, lasting change necessarily. I mean, there's a both end here as I see it. I guess I'm just wanting to present this other side in that if I go and I just do the right thing, quote unquote, because you told me and you're the expert, there's a good chance, especially in my work as a therapist, that it goes out sideways in terms of mental health, that I might you know, have a public persona that's a really nice guy and who's really caring and really acts like I give a shit about your experience over there. um, And I really don't. Um, which can generate even more resentment and more bitterness and more microaggressions uh, elsewhere. Uh, Go home to the buddies and talk about, oh yeah, that woman works such a bitch, you know, or whatever, that kind of thing, which, which in in a way Mm -hmm. can cement the toxic culture that you're working hard to, to shift. And and I'm not, uh, I'm not trying to um, dismiss because I think what you're up to is more realistic let's just sort of fake it till we make it. I think there's real value in that, especially if we can stay relational there and someone feels enough safety to to express more of their experience. Um, does so that make sense?
2: Yeah. And I mean, I definitely look, if, if we can shift people's beliefs, that's obviously better, right? Sure. Like yeah. that's, that's the ideal. Um, and I think there's a couple of things, right? Like there's the individual and there's the systemic, and so a lot of the work that we do is on the individual level of just I need you individual person to behave differently or to know what these behaviors are and be able to report them, and then I also need the systems and the institutions to work differently, right and to yeah. respond in ways that they haven't in the past I think um it's and it's really only at the extreme ends of hostility i think that we want to only see behavior change not belief change and i think we always want to get the belief change it's just you know what's realistic um you know i had a coworker that in at one point that indicated to me that he felt that women overall and in the like women overall in the organization and then also just broadly in society had attained too much power and things were too imbalanced and um, women now were scary to him. And it made it so uncomfortable to work with him. And I was like, at this point, all I need is I don't, I'm not going to get you out of your like Reddit men's rights threads that you (laughs) I'm sure are spending your time in, but I do need you to not make comments like that to me at work. Yeah. Um, it makes it actively difficult for me to do my job. It makes it impossible for me to feel safe being like in one on one work with you, and so it makes it unsafe yeah. for me to be in community with you um and that's not that doesn't work for me.
0: Yeah. Um, so you know this feels like one of those places to jump in and say, Yeah, this is mine and Mika's job, and hopefully other men's jobs. To be able to say, hey, dude, are you kidding me that there's women have too much power now relative to what the 94 percent power men have had and the 6 percent power women have is 12 percent too much for you, man. Like really actually coming in fiercely. Um,
2: Yeah, that's a really great point. And that's actually one of the bystander intervention strategies that we teach people is um, you can delegate the. Problem to somebody who has the authority to intervene. And that might be yep. somebody who literally has the authority in terms of like bosses. Right. Um, but it can also just be who has the social authority. And in those cases, having other men say, hey man, like that's not what I think, like you are out of the mainstream, right? Yeah. One of the things that we know about men who assault um, and uh, and rape is that they think that all other men do that too, right? They think their behaviors are really normal and that other men um, or, you know, mainstream things sort of deny that, but really behind closed doors, everybody is behaving and thinking the same way they are. And I think that's the same thing with that kind of misogyny, right? (laughs) Is that men think that other men are going to believe the same as them. And so having other men interrupt that in particular, one makes it not my problem anymore, right? I can yeah. Outsource the solution to this to somebody else, and I don't have to do that labor. Um, but also, it has the, the um, effect of saying, hey, like that's not actually the norm here, and you're the one who's out of line.
1: Yeah. So, Robin, I have a question. I'm curious because we're not, um, you know, we're not speaking in a vacuum. We, um, what was it? It's been two years now since MeToo hit. Um, the 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 internet waves and and I, um, time's up, and I think it's actually it's been a while. There was a moment where it felt like there was a paradigm shift, essentially, and um, I wonder now, a couple of years later, uh, do you feel a certain shift in workplaces? Has there been momentum in a good direction, or have we? become a little more complacent since it's received its uh, a t- a moment of attention in, in the media and now we're kind of snapping back. I'm curious what you're, what you're witnessing, what you're experiencing.
2: I think it's sort of all of the above. Um, there are certainly shifts, right? And I think that there are people who have really gotten the message. I think there are... A lot of people and men, in particular, who have started to learn more over the last couple years about the kinds of experiences that, generally speaking, women um, have. Right, and so it's not just outright sexual assault, but what are the smaller things that happen in the course of dating or sexual encounters, or or what does it look like at workplace sexual harassment when it's less obvious. Um, I think a lot of men have learned a lot more about that, both through reporting that's happened. So things like the, um, as flawed as it was, the story about Aziz Ansari, um, (laughs) I think opened a lot of eyes. And then a lot of it is happening through micro level conversations that people are having in the workplace A lot of workplaces definitely either revamped policies or they redistributed their policies around to say, hey, here's a reminder. (laughs) Um, And places did trainings that didn't have trainings before. Unfortunately, most of what's out there or most of what's affordable for people are those little check the box, click through things online sorts of trainings that may not be moving the needle that much. But there's a lot of a lot more really good work happening. And I think that people are putting in the work to find consultants or find organizations that are going to do more than that check the box thing. That's certainly what I hear a hunger for. Um, So I I think the answer is all of what you asked, right? There are places that are complacent. There are places that did nothing more than send the existing policy that sucks around to their employees. Um, And there's people that are really trying to make a difference. Um, There's a lot of new organizations and companies out there trying to do this work to shift um, attitudes on workplace harassment uh, that are out there. You know, I've got a whole network of people based in D.C., and I'm sure there are lots based elsewhere of people that are doing this work. Um, And I think, it just takes a little bit of digging for people to get there mm-hmm. and to actually try to do it. Um, but it's happening. I think um, people are feeling a little bit less pressure right now. Um, I, it took a little bit for companies to respond just because things move at bureaucracy speed. Um, and, you know, so after everything broke open with. Uh, Me Too and Time's Up, you know, it maybe took places six months to actually get something contracted and get trainings in place, Um, and then folks were doing it, and now I think it has gone a little bit back into the complacent space where there's just a lot less pressure on everyone's necks to do it, Um, but I still get inquiries, so uh, there's definitely people still saying, hey, we want to do this, and we want to do this right.
0: It's good to hear uh, this larger sort of meta view that, that you're describing. Uh, uh, something feels quite relevant in the inter- interpersonal one-on-one or in small groups, which is the follow-up, like in really moving the needle, not just having like a seismic disturbance and then the needle going back to where it has been. Is the follow-up any sort of interaction that I find, like for instance, I'm it's still quite an edge for me. Nick and, and I were talking about this earlier to intervene and say, "Hey, man." That's not cool. What you just said is not cool. Um, because of my own trauma, both small T and big T with the aggressive masculine. Um, and also I'm a big dude. I'm kind of imposing, I have a deep voice. And so I try to be go in like a lamb and people seem to receive it like I'm a lion. And so already I'm like, Oh my God, now this dude wants to fight me. And this was not what I bargained for. Um, but if I am able to say something, for me, it's huge, not just for my relationship with that person, but also myself to follow up with a person to say, hey, I want to check in with you about what I shared and you know, want to see where the impact was. And um, so that follow-up and certainly organizationally following up with the next training or a refresher training or uh, who knows, back to the cultural shift, that feels really big. And also I, I get curious... For most men, there's zero incentive to do that. There's zero incentive because I'll just go to some younger, not as uh, aggressively resistant woman to, you know, ply my misogyny and sexism. Um, So I'm not sure why I'm saying that, but it it feels like both the following up and also the sort of disincentivized culture that we have when it comes to, you know, why do that?
2: Yeah. So, I mean, I think I would throw this back to you with an exercise that we do, that I do in trainings, which is to ask, um, when you've witnessed harassment, whether at work or out in the world, on the subway, whatever, um, when there's something that you've seen, um, what is what is it that has kept you from speaking up? So one thing is sort of that perception of you as sort of an aggressive, you know, bigger guy and how that might come across. Um but what other things are there for both of you that keep you from saying something in that moment or afterwards?
1: Oh man, I don't want to be perceived as uncool. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Let's just put it out. I mean, I don't want to be, I don't want to be that guy. Don't want to be the nerd or, or the whoever in class. I mean, a lot of this takes me back to high school and being in with the in crowd and not wanting to be a, uh, a loner and a geek or whatever the name I mean I yeah, I that's yeah, isolation. That's what it and I think what you're naming and I and also one of the shifts that I've definitely noticed, I think we can I don't know that this is true. My experience in my in my everyday life is there are more men's groups, for example, that are mushrooming up in cities across the country and around the world, I wanna say. Than I'd experienced five years ago. Five years ago, ten years ago, um, there were women's circles that I knew of everywhere, but I didn't know of so many men's groups and so much men's work going on. I think that's a big shift that has happened, which, is, which doesn't directly tackle sexual harassment, but maybe it, it does in a, in a more holistic approach um and in that sense kind of shifts the paradigm towards making it more cool quote unquote um to not be a douchebag to not be to not to not harass women to not be a bully mm. well so what has you bringing that
0: up? And like in terms of her question.
1: Oh, in terms of your question, I think if you're asking what's held me back in the past, um, and growing up, we've we've spoken to this before. So we we have different. Um, I was raised in Jerusalem, um, which is you know we we are highly militarized. There's an occupation happening. There's a lot of masculinity. There's a lot of chauvinist and machismo. Um, atmosphere and in, in, in growing up in high school. And that's pretty much a pervasive cultural moment. And in that sense, I think what's held me back is still wanting to belong and be in the in crowd in that sense. And I'd like to think these days, maybe it's because you know, for the past couple of years I've been living in Boulder, that that's shifting. I don't know that that's true all over the place, but that is what's held me back in the past.
2: Yeah, I think there's, you know, there's when I ask that question when I'm working with groups, there's a lot of answers that come up. And a lot of them are the two that you said, right? Of being, you know, your physical presence coming across a particular way. And we know that that is definitely also racialized, um, you know, for men of color to be able to step into a moment um, and be perceived a particular way, uh, especially guys who are bigger um and are going to be perceived as a physical threat like that's a thing um the not wanting to walk the boat or not wanting to seem like you're being a buzzkill or like you're less you know fun or less down than everybody else um is another the other things that come up are things like um for me it's always I can never figure out what to say in the moment i can never come up with the right words mm. right then yeah um, I will shout back at street harassers. Like two blocks later, I have the perfect thing to say. Um, <laughs> but uh, you know, other things are things like I don't know the entire situation, and I don't know the context, and so I don't know if, if jumping yeah. in in that moment is going to be um, welcomed. I don't know if a person would want me to say something. A thing I hear from guys sometimes is uh, I don't know if it's really my place, like I don't want to speak over or speak for this woman who is having this experience um, or, you know, and be seen as like sort of paternalistic in that moment. So there's all kinds of reasons and obstacles that we all have for not feeling like we can speak up. But getting back to, you know, what Jeff raised a few minutes ago, I think it's important for all of us to just Think of that, think of our own answers for that question and be able to acknowledge what is it that's standing in our way and then realize how minor those most of those things are most of the time Mm, compared to what's at stake in a situation. And so uh, it can be really hard to say something in that moment, but I think that the circling back that you're talking about, Jeff, is really useful. Um, you know, for one thing, not everything has to be said the first time in that moment. You can yeah. always say something to somebody after, like I was saying earlier, and go up to somebody and say, hey, that thing you said wasn't cool, or that made me uncomfortable. Um, you can also always go up to the person who was harmed in an interaction and check in with them and say, hey, I, I heard what he said back there. I thought that was really inappropriate. How can I support you in this moment? Mm-hmm. Right? What do you need? How are you feeling about this, et cetera? And then, yeah, it's not a one time conversation and it's not a one time interaction. Um, When we do trainings, uh, we do like surveys ahead of time to learn what people's attitudes are and how, you know, what do they feel about the workplace culture? And we do surveys afterwards that assess, you know, how much did you learn in this? Right and how more? How much more comfortable, if at all, do you feel with um, understanding what sexual harassment is or how you can address it? And then also, what additional trainings do you want? What additional conversations do you want to have? Because this isn't a one-time thing. So we want to be able to go back in in six months or a year or less than that and go and say. Um, okay, like, let's spend some more focused time talking about um, you know, working with like, the men on staff about and, and creating like a men's group on your staff to talk about masculinity and the issues that men feel like they're experiencing in the world. Or let's have a longer training that goes way more in depth on bystander intervention. Or um, let's do some more work on LGBTQ cultural competency um, so that people can create more inclusive workspaces for their colleagues and potential colleagues in the future. Um, that is all follow-up, right? That's not, you can't just have this as one conversation. And I think right. that's true at the large level when we're talking about trainings like this, that your workplace should not be just giving you you know, one conversation about this and you're done. Mm-hmm. Um, at the very least, even yearly refreshers are an opportunity to go more, go, to go deeper on specific topics and then on the micro level yeah if you have a conversation with somebody and you say hey that thing wasn't cool or you're sharing something about yourself um to follow up with them to have another conversation of like hey have you thought any further about that conversation we had
1: yeah
0: yeah that that point the follow-up and i think this is really true in my experience just with interactions that involve some kind of conflict or some kind of risk some kind of vulnerability perceived or otherwise is our challenge in, in having enough resilience internally in ourselves to stay relational with whomever we're, uh, across from. Um, that's a biggie for me and I see it a lot and it's a big challenge for me and I work on this stuff every day, especially when someone else is resistant to staying relational because we've confronted them or, um, around this very thing.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think it's hard, right? All of this is hard. All of this goes against, I think, how we've all sort of been trained. And when it comes to, you know, talking about sexual harassment and and workplace harassment, we're often very inclined to absolutely step out of being relational with somebody, right? To immediately say, this person did something wrong and... Now we're done. (laughs) Um, And I don't think that that serves us particularly well. Obviously, it depends on what the wrongdoing was in any given moment, right? Sure, if someone's brandishing Um, a gun, you don't say,
0: how's it going today? You seem like you're having a hard day. You probably run, just as a radical example.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, right? So it obviously depends on what that conduct is. Um, But I think the challenge for all of us is to push ourselves to work with somebody or to acknowledge that other people are doing the work um, and are growing or are working on growing in order to stay in particular spaces that we can have a sense of accountability sort of in place. Um, Certainly, sometimes people should be fired for the things that they've done. Um, Certainly, sometimes people should not you know, even if there's work to be done and growth to be had, and you want somebody to be doing that work, maybe staying within that workplace while doing that work is not the appropriate response for what they've done. Um People need to go away and do that work sometimes, and that doesn't mean be gone for six months and then come back um <laughs> like you actually have to do the work. time is not the work yeah. um, but uh but other times. There are opportunities for growth. You know, I think this goes back, Jeff, to what you were saying earlier about wanting people to have the chance to grow and be accountable for their behaviors and that we need to confront people with the things that they've done that were harmful in order to give them the opportunity to make amends and to repair the harm that they've created. And so, And sometimes people can do that within the context of staying in their job. And that doesn't mean that they maintain all the power they had. Um, It might mean that they don't get a raise this year. It might mean that they are no longer in a supervisory role. Right? There are all (laughs) kinds of things that we can do, um, but maybe that work happens through mediation. Maybe in a workplace um, and a community that is willing and able to do this work, that looks like doing restorative justice work. Mm -hmm. um, If everybody involved is amenable to that and feels able to engage in that. Sometimes it can be additional counseling or training for people. Um, one of the things that I work with uh, workplaces to do is to make explicit what the possibilities are for consequences or actions beyond firing. Right? Most people's policies say, you know, uh, you know, the punishment for violating this policy, something, something, up to and including termination. Right. <laughs> Um, But it doesn't say what the up to is Um, and it doesn't tell you, you know, what could happen. And so we don't have much collective imagination around how to solve for this. And that's one of the things that I work with folks on creating is what can accountability look like beyond firing somebody within this workplace? What is the space between a note goes in someone's file and they get fired? Mm -hmm. What do we put in that space? And how do we create accountability and create the capacity for growth and recognize the capacity for growth? Because it's not aligned with our values since I work with progressive organizations. It's not aligned with our values to discard people. Um, So to the extent possible, how can we make possible the doing of this work in a way that is safe for everybody, um, but in a way that we come out stronger on the other end of it?
0: yeah that feels very valuable. Two things come up. The one thing you just said safe for everybody a thing i 'll often say instead of safe is safe enough or increasing safety so that we can uh, have a different experience like for instance if i 'm a if i 'm a man in a in an organization that you 're working with and i I do something that 's really sexist blatantly uh, to your point i 'm not going to learn anything if I just get fired um, or if I get public publicly humiliated. Uh, and shamed, that probably has me not back to the disincentivizing um, and I do think there are healthy amounts of humiliation and and shame uh, and that depends on the person to your point and I thought this earlier, having a staff mediator in an h r department seems like a great idea, you know someone that works with the whole the whole company from you know the top down um, to make this a more just active, engaged, open dialogue in that culture shift. That all feels, hopefully, well, I don't know if hopefully it's the right word, but that all feels, yeah, really important in terms of this change.
2: And I think it's not, it's not that shame is what we want people to feel,
3: necessarily. Oh, I, I, I'm, I'm not saying um, that. I'm just making a point of,
0: <laughs> yeah. to your point, the note in the file versus termination uh note in the file not enough consequence termination maybe too much consequence depending on the egregious nature of the act
2: yeah it depends on the action it depends on you know there's some workplaces that are large enough that you can shift people away from having to work together and that solves yeah. the problem um there may be other problems there as to why you know interpersonal conflict ar- arose in the first place but mm-hmm. broadly speaking if if the solution that somebody needs is just that They need to not work with this person anymore. um, Then sometimes you can create that in lots of the organizations I work with. That's really not possible. So what the correct response is to some, you know, to misbehavior is not so much like, okay, well, it was this kind of conduct, which we're going to say, you know, which we put on a ranking scale (sighs) and then the punishment for a level three is X and so that's what we just do, right? You have to match things based on context. Right. And I, I know lots of places have ranking scales or sort of threat level assessments. And um, if that works for them, that's great. But to me, I think you need more nuance than that. Um, but to what I was saying about shame is um, that it is not necessarily about making someone feel shame or make someone, making someone feel called out. And sometimes it's going to be counterproductive Um, and it's just going to make someone feel like their back's against the wall or like they're just being bullied and ganged up on anyways. Uh, But it also has the same, you know, if we think back to the example that I gave earlier about having men address another man's misogyny, all of these techniques of directly confronting these behaviors has the effect of creating like, what is our culture? what is our so what are our social norms for how we act in this environment and so the purpose often of calling someone's behavior out or directly confronting it with them or having somebody of their same sort of social grouping address it with them in all of those cases whether it's making a you know a quick comment in a meeting or talking to somebody afterwards to say hey that wasn't cool all of those things allow us to say That's not our culture, right? You are out of line with what is Uh, acceptable here. Yeah. Mm -hmm. The way that we create culture is by showing what behaviors are acceptable and what behaviors are not. Right. right? That's true of culture everywhere. And so when we have cultures, when we have workplaces or societies or friend groups that allow misconduct to go unchallenged, Mm That allow sexist comments that allow pregnancy discrimination, that allow you know unchecked unwelcome sexual advances, all of that um, that tells us that the culture is that that's allowed right, mm. and so even though the law says it's not, if your workplace says it's okay, then it's okay, and so that's where it's on all of us as leaders in our organizations who have the ability to set agendas and policies. And what kinds of training we do and all of that down to each individual worker who has the power, depending on the situation, to say, hey, I don't like that. Or that was um, a really inappropriate comment or uh, or even just going, wow, right, (laughs) at somebody's misconduct all of that is something that pushes back and says, our culture doesn't allow that.
3: Mm-hmm. And that's mm-hmm.
2: what we have to create is a culture where that kind of behavior isn't acceptable. That as much as we say, it's not acceptable. Uh, if it happens and nobody addresses it, then it's acceptable.
1: Right. Tacit, implicit. Yep. Exactly. You know, what, what I'm really appreciating hearing you talk and understanding a little more what um, about your approach to work is, um, the f- how you flesh out and shed light on a ginormous oh, and and uh, what I've experienced in the past is a very scary issue to talk about. It's it 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 can shut down a room. It can shut down a person. There's not mostly because I, to be honest, don't have the language, and I feel am lacking tools in my kit to unpack. Um, uh, uh, the tension, and I what I'm appreciating is it feels like that you provide language and tools to be able to face something in a common, and collected, and professional way that doesn't cause it, doesn't need to be scary. It can actually we can actually shift culture consciously, clearly, um, with a level headed mind. Um, it doesn't need to be a scary moment. We can all actually agree to be on a learning curve together and grow. As we are um, more and more accountable to our shared spaces and to the safety, who are all of our safety in our shared spaces? Yeah,
2: thank you. Um, That's what I try to do, right? Is to make this accessible, and I think that that's what's so important about all of this work. Is much of this has not been accessible because it is always couched in such legalistic language. If you look at workplace policies. they are so inaccessible and they are so unclear most of the time as to like, what exactly is it that is and isn't allowed? Um, What is the threshold for that? How do I access solutions if I'm having a problem? And we know that people don't have the language and vocabulary around this. So the um, Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, the EEOC did a um, they convened a task force. It's the EEOC Select Task Force on Workplace Harassment, I believe, is the full name. Um, they released a report in 2016, and they were studying workplace harassment of all kinds, not just sexual harassment, but also based on race and national origin and age and disability and, and all of that. Um, and uh, one of the findings from that was that about 75% of women report experiencing behaviors that amount to sexual harassment in the workplace. Um, wow. but That is not that if you say, have you experienced sexual harassment, that three quarters of women will raise their hand and say yes. It's actually much, much, much lower. (laughs) Um, I want to say, I forget the statistic exactly, but um, go read the report. It's fascinating. Uh, But once you start asking about the specific behaviors that people have experienced, right? have you had somebody touch you um, against your will? Mm. Have you had somebody make unwanted sexual advances? Have you had somebody, you know, ask you out repeatedly despite your rejection? Have you had somebody make sexist comments like this? That's where it starts to rack up, Mm -hmm. right? And so, and we know that this is true, is that people just don't have the vocabulary for their own experiences. Mm -hmm. And so there's lots of us walking around going, that made me uncomfortable but I don't actually know why. I don't have a name for what it is that just happened. Um, And as such, if you don't have language for it and you don't know, hey, that thing that somebody said actually falls under sexual harassment and that is a thing that you know is unacceptable, at least in word. um, Once you know that that's the case, then you feel more comfortable going, oh, okay, that thing I experienced is not okay. Otherwise, we walk around feeling uncomfortable and yet... Wondering whether we're allowed to feel uncomfortable about it. Yeah. Um, and so by having more vocabulary and more language for what it is we're experiencing or what it is that we're witnessing um, or hearing about, that allows us to then address it in a much more prompt way. We only know that it's okay to address the really egregious stuff. Right. Like we, the examples that we hear, it's like back to the John took his pants off in a meeting example, Mm. um, in trainings is like, okay, we know that that's not okay, but you know, John just making a comment about his coworkers, the way his coworkers dress and like that's, that doesn't seem as much of a problem to many of us. Um, But it is, and we should figure out how to address these things earlier on before they are severe and pervasive enough to be legally actionable. Um, But just because they make somebody uncomfortable, even at that lower level, less severe or less pervasive problem, um, it's still a problem. And once we have the language for that, then we're able to address it. Um, If we don't have the language, then we can't ever figure out how to say what it is that's happening to us.
0: Yeah. And there's one piece that has come up a couple of times in the last few minutes that having clear uh, sense of what is acceptable and what's not, especially when it's uh, say company wide organization wide uh, that is, I think a huge um, mitigator when it comes to feeling like the bad guy or the, 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 the jerk or the, what's your problem? Um, because you get to point to this third thing, not in you. Hey, the rules say this. Right, in terms of our capacity to, to both advocate for ourselves as well as bystander intervention, where we don't feel like the heavy or the jerk or the person who's too rigid. So that feels really big too. Even just, like you said, conceptually realizing, oh, just because I don't have a category for this doesn't mean it's cool or acceptable because I didn't feel good.
2: Yeah, and I think that also creating, we need to have rules that are clear. You know, so that when you're pointing to something or you go look in your workplace's policy or whatever for, you know, did this thing that happened to me break a rule, right. um, that you can actually see it there. Knowing what your workplace considers acceptable or not is really important. And that's one of the reasons why it's also valuable to engage not just, you know, pull a policy from somewhere else and just adapt it or just you know get whatever your lawyers wrote and you know and put it in place but also you know work within the workplace culture what is the kind of stuff that happens here what are the experiences that our people have you know we have people that are going to conferences or i have organizations i work with that work across cultures and across countries and the realities of those things need to be <sighs> right. written down and yeah. reflected yeah. in The documents that we have, um, making it specific to your workplace, um, has a lot of value because you can start to see and connect with the language that's being used.
0: one thing, and I I think I want to hear from you, uh, this also feels like a culture shift from, uh, bottom line slash dollar slash profit centric corporations and actually human centric corporations and organizations. Because it really requires, as, as it lands in me, it, it really requires a vigilance on the part of the, the company's culture to give a shit enough about people's experience, not just back to this whole brick-and-mortar thing or even in their cubicle, but beyond that, conferences, different countries, different cultures, uh, happy hour,
1: all that. Uh, you know what I'm curious about? I'm, I'm curious about... I love that you named the different cultures coming from, you know, uh, coming grow, having been raised in Israel and knowing that there's a very different culture, but also very, very similar. I also realize that you're up against a monolith. We're all up against a monolith of a cultural shift. And I wonder um, differences regarding generations. You know, if we grew up in the 80s and the 90s and we watched Hollywood um, tell us that the right way to kiss a girl was to grab her and force a kiss on her, um, because that's what romance looks like. What you're describing around consent culture is a complete um, paradigm shift, um, and I'm wondering if you notice that in in your work with different companies as well. If there's a generational, uh, different generational understanding,
2: there certainly are. Um, but that by no means says that you know workers who are older came up in a different time than another generation of workers there um, are less receptive or are less able to understand any of these concepts. Um,
1: We're all just on a learning find, curve together.
2: Yeah. Sometimes it's a learning curve. Um, and sometimes there's certainly a sense of like, well, these, like, these comments have always been fine or back in my day. And that's, you know, it's, it's something to work with. And it's something that we talk through Um, About how um, these behaviors were always there and it does not mean that it was okay then or people didn't object then. Mm -hmm. It's just that people didn't necessarily either have the language to know that it wasn't okay or didn't have the power culturally or within any given company to object And so it is not like the secretaries in the secretary pool used to love having their asses pinched by their bosses or getting pinned against desks. Um, And I'm sure some of it was perfectly consensual, but some of it surely was not. Um, And that just that somebody didn't say no does not mean that it was welcome. Yep. Um, And so that's, you know, stuff that we have to overcome sometimes, but... I think there's a hunger at all ages and all generations to um, have working environments that are and feel safe for everybody. Um, People who are older just sometimes have a little bit more catching up to do on what that means or looks like, or helping them imagine what's possible, um much of it is just the much of the response i get to things is like i didn't even realize that that was an available option yeah right um it is not that they don't want it or are resistant to it it's just a um i didn't even i didn't realize that that kind of i didn't realize that kind of comment hurt people i didn't realize that that kind of uh resolution was possible i didn't know um that the law covered That kind of behavior, I didn't know that it was possible for us to have a policy that covers this other kind of behavior, even though the law doesn't. Um, There's a lot there, and there's, I think, a real hunger for it. It's just learning. And I think it's learning for everybody.
1: Yeah. You know, cognizant of your time, of our time, and really appreciating um, our discussion, before wrapping up, I'm curious if there's such a thing, knowing that— you know, for the better bozos out there, it it sounds being immersed in this conversation that there might be, is there such a thing as a toolkit? is are there a couple of tools you'd be able to offer um, as a, hey, if you're gonna keep your fingers on the pulse of how, you know uh, of of the of the atmosphere in a room um, or how or my particular behavior, Are there a couple of tools that you might be able to offer uh, a better bozo?
2: I don't know about that, honestly. Um,
1: Consent was one, you know, to keep my eyes, for me to hear you describe, listen, consent is a shift in the way I think, the way I approach a, a, a conversation, my workspace, my relationships. That's one Awesome and i and I don't want to belittle it as saying this is just a tool because I feel like it's a it's a paradigm shift to 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 shift into consent culture, but that feels like one to keep our uh attention to
2: yeah and I, I mean I think that is the the biggest thing right is um being cognizant of who's around you and what your relationship is to people um and it it does all i mean it's going to sound reductive, but like it all comes back to consent all the time. Um, and so I don't know that I have like a whole toolkit to give you, um, but I think that consent thing is, is a huge part of it, of being cognizant of um, how might somebody else be receiving this and how do I just make sure before I say something that someone's okay with it mm-hmm. um, and that someone is going, you know, that I'm not going to veer wildly off track.
0: I would add to the repair piece. I think these three things, the getting consent, starting to think differently, like, oh, huh, I'm going to make a sexist joke right now with three women or non-male people in the room. Maybe I don't do that. And then if I'm bozo-ish enough that I make the joke and get a lot of blank stares and maybe some some rough stares that I learn how to repair, I go back around and say, oh, hey, Jim, did I just screw up right there? And for Jim to say, thanks for asking. You totally did, man. I think you should go talk (laughs) to those three people that those seem like three pretty graspable tools for the average, maybe above average Bozo slash Schmo. Yeah, that's
2: right. I think that's
1: a great one. Okay. Well, Robin, we're going to be posting as much information about you, um, as we can online and a lot of links and, um, and, and hope, um, hope to talk to you again down the line. Really appreciate you taking the time with us today.
0: Yeah, thanks so much, Robin. Thank
2: you so much for having me.
0: Yeah, it's good to meet you. And uh, I agree with Mika. Hopefully we'll talk again.
1: Great. Well, thank you guys so much. Again some more soon, please. You take care.
2: <laughs> thanks. Take care.
1: Bye, Robin. Bye. What did you think of that?
0: Wow. I have a similar experience pretty much every time we interview someone. Like I want to have two more hours and uh, more Q&A because a lot comes up for me.
1: What would you dive into if if we had more time?
0: For me, I would dive into more real world because a lot of this is great. And I also, one of the questions that was burning for me that I didn't ask is her in her own community because workplace stuff is super important. Although, well, I guess that's not true. I do have a, a bunch of colleagues that just work in an office by myself mostly. So certainly I'm impacted in, in the shared spaces here. <clears throat> and for me, I want more practical real life scenarios. We talked about some of them, but something like role plays, Back to the repair piece. Because I we're going to step in shit. We're all bozos. We're all human. And so that's a thing I, I, I want to hear more of. And I was curious about Robin's own experience in her community of friends and the larger community that might be acquaintances or friends of friends in terms of how does she maintain good relations in that circle or those overlapping circles. And I can imagine
1: she doesn't with everybody.
0: No, it seems impossible, right? We always have to, I think, or at least for me, weigh... And this is an interesting, uh, you know, juxtaposition, I think, per our conversation earlier. Like, I don't want to be friends with everybody. I can't be. right? Sure. So we have to choose well and to be discerning on that front and also intervening even if someone's not my friend. This is that, that intervening thing we talk about, like actually having what she called the bystander intervention.
1: I mean, I got to say my takeaway... My biggest takeaway from from our conversation this time is mm-hmm. that it's sure as hell time that I learn to intervene oh, more and same. better.
0: Well said. And same. that
1: I stop, you know, shying away from that responsibility.
0: Yeah. And 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 I really liked what Robin was saying about just, just starting to learn what the hell doesn't actually fly. And ideally from a third party. And interventions are part of how we do it. So if I see you talking with somebody and I intervene, I want to do so hopefully as skillfully as I can. And this is another thing I wanted to bring up is that back to the, we're going to make a mess. And so, and she said this too, is that not everything gets spoken that first time to be able to intervene and then learn how to do it more skillfully. Like I might say, since you and I are friends, I would say, Hey, Mika, man, can I talk to you about something? Yeah. Yeah. As opposed to, Hey, asshole, (laughs) you know, that that's not going to go very far with most people. Sure. And maybe have the opposite effect.
1: Sure. I mean, I got to say when it comes to this conversation with Rob, and this is um, one of the most tense or, you know, tense tension based conversations that I've experienced when it comes to calling out Mm -hmm. guys around sexual harassment and rape and, and yeah. the rape culture that we've, I think, grown up in. Yeah. I'd like to say maybe that that's changing, but I don't know. Um, and I think you're right. I think there's more here to discuss. I kind of feel like we... I appreciate how... Um, she, what she described f- feels like she can flesh out language for it, but it feels like we skimmed the surface. I feel like there's more to I dive into. I I yeah. need... I. Personally, would like to flesh that out and dive in a little deeper. Even maybe it so, means it, inviting her over for a full workshop. Maybe it, like if she's giving a four-hour yeah. workshop and we actually engage engage in her methods, mm-hmm. then we get a chance to learn a little more.
0: Yeah, that's a, a great thought, uh, and that does feel like part of our growing responsibility as men is to actively educate ourselves, especially when I know for myself, somebody calls me out, it hurts. I feel humiliated. I feel shame. And I tend to, depending on, you know, we've talked about this on the show, calling out versus calling in. Yep. That fine line and going back to what's my level of resilience for someone calling me in. Yep. Even if it feels like a call out uh, so that I can you know handle being able to stay in myself and stay relational. And what you just said feels like, oh wow, what a great way for me to build my resilience around knowing this isn't a personal attack on me when someone says what you said was not cool. Mm -hmm. It's actually someone caring for someone else and ultimately caring for me so that I can learn how to to actually care for others better, be more relational, be more aware, uh, more uh, aware of consent, everything like that. Um, And I think time-wise, we should probably wrap this up. And so, um, just want to say thanks again to Robin Swirling.
1: Absolutely, I kind of get the feeling like um, we're gonna follow up. Yeah. Now maybe not necessarily here on the Better Bozo, but maybe it looks like the Better Bozo inviting Robin over to, to give do some workshop. workshops around Boulder <laughs> totally. and with our community.
0: Yeah, awesome. All right, thanks for listening to the Better Bozo. I'm Jeff.
1: I'm Mika. We'll talk to you soon.